As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. This season, the world's biggest football podcast network is even bigger. Alongside our three weekly episodes of Totally and the two Totally Football League shows, we've got three episodes of the all-new Athletic Football Podcast with Mark Chapman. Adam Hurry's Football Clichés will now be with you on Mondays and Wednesdays. There'll be two lots of Michael Cox on our Tactics podcast and we've revamped our FPL and women's football shows. Our Liverpool, Man United, Chelsea and Tottenham club podcasts are now twice a week. And don't forget, we've also got our TIFO, Offside Rule and Football Manager shows too. There are also amazing new series with both Kelly Cates and Jackie Oatley coming up later in the year, so stay tuned for those. You can listen to all of these podcasts across our network in all the usual places or ad-free on The Athletic app. The Athletic, the world's biggest football podcast network. Totally Football Show. Today, a blockbuster opening weekend. No sign of when we'll see Citizen Kane, but Tottenham Hotspur in the meanwhile, sure harrying City. Elsewhere, there's brilliant starts for Bruno and Pogba, hot stuff from the Hornets, and a visit to the Bees that brought Arsenal fans out in hives. All that and much more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Ahoy hoy, listener. Uh, how lovely to be back with you between your ears. Uh, it is Monday the 16th of August, probably, as we drop this podcast on you. On board with us, we've got the sweet Skarsky stylings of Sasha Gurionov. Hey, Sash. Hello, James. Fresh back from Brentford. Carl Anker rhymes with Nal. Uh, he's back on the old Trafford beat. Hey, Carl. Hello there. Hello. I bet you're bursting with stuff to tell us about your trip uh, to see the game uh, with Leeds. But before we get onto any of that stuff, it's a big salute to a man now with an executive parking spot and a key to the special lab. Daniel Story, uh, you are now Chief Football Writer for The Eye, Daniel. Yes, I am, as of as of last week, yes. Brilliant Thank stuff. you for having me back, even despite those circumstances. No, I mean, I, I, you, you're far too modest. It, it's great. And it's lovely to see, you know, one of the... One of the family making good. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was an absolutely brilliant opening weekend, no? I, I imagine we all really, really enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. That was a thriller. It was goals galore, fans back, 
absolutely no one in fullback positions had any interest in defending. So plenty of it. Long may it continue. Right. Sash, less VAR as well, or less obvious VAR. Those thick uh, armpit-free lines were, were, were working a treat, no? Uh, yeah, I wish there was a bit more VAR uh, because I felt really? that uh, Bernd Leno suffered from lack of VAR in the opening game. We'll get to that. Okay. A lot of people feeling that things had been smoother and, and perhaps because the fans were there or perhaps because of Premier League directives, the referees had just allowed a little bit more to happen in games. It certainly made for a very entertaining watches up and down the league. Looking forward to your hot takes now that we've played a whole 2.6% of the season. Do bear in mind, though, that this time in the last campaign, our opening day conclusions would have included West Ham being in for a, a difficult time with, with Moyes on, on borrow time and, and William being the the signing of the season. So I wonder what we'll come up with this year. Anyway, uh, first quick check on the scores. Brentford kicked things off on Friday, beating Arsenal 2-0 on their first time back in the top flight since before it existed. Saturday, Man United started strong, doing Leeds 5-1. Chelsea later that day, 3-0 winners over Pat Vieira's Palace. Just the one goal for Leicester against Wolves from Jamie Vardy, of course. Four goals at Goodison as Everson came from behind to beat Saints 3-1 on Rafa's debut. Five goals at Vicarage Road as promoted Watford went 3-0 up against Villa and held on to make it 3-2. Brighton came from a goal down away at Burnley, extending the Clarets' winless run at home to 11 matches. And Saturday evening, it was 3-0 for Liverpool as well at Norwich. Mo Salah, the first player to score on the opening weekend in five consecutive Premier League campaigns. On Sunday, West Ham twice went behind at Newcastle, but emerged 4-2 winners in a bit of a thriller. And Spurs were 1-0 victors over Man City. That's the champions' third 1-0 defeat in a row. The promoted sides then off to a big start. It's only the second time in Premier League history that two of the three sides coming up have won their opening fixture. And all the contenders for the title looking good, apart from Man City. Now, we talked about hasty conclusions. Which of this weekend's results should we most mistrust, do you think? And why is it Man United, Carl? (laughs) Uh, With regards to Manchester United, I think it's the fact that uh, United are good on counter-attacks. They're very good attacking on the transition. We knew this last season, hence their the fantastic record and comeback wins on their unbeaten away record. I think the challenge for United will always be, can they break down teams that defend deep and hunker down uh, at their, their still weaknesses in central midfield? The mm. one result that I look at and go, hang on, from this weekend is probably Watford's victory over Aston Villa. Watford were good. Uh, I was surprised that Tom Cleverley was captain and then sort of remember, oh yeah, Troy Deeney will be coming back soon and the captain's armband will go there. And I'm not quite sure Aston Villa will be the Europa League contenders that everyone thinks they will be, but I, I certainly think Villa will come good and, and be a very consistent top half team rather than what they mm. look like on Saturday, which was very poor. Sash, what about for you? Well, I hope it's not misleading, but uh, Brighton winning at Burnley, turning around a game that was going very much against them with all three subs working, is very unlike Brighton that I remember. Mm. So hopefully it's not too misleading. Daniel, what, what, what do you think will turn out to be you know, a weird quirk of the opening weekend? Uh, I think it probably a more general point, but I think it's, there's certainly a case to be made that teams having fans back probably put the onus on home teams to be a bit more expansive than perhaps some of their managers would normally like. I think Newcastle is probably the the obvious example in that, I mean, that was the game of the weekend in terms of 
watching as a neutral, um, which I don't think will be necessarily become the norm, partly because it left Newcastle quite exposed second half. So I think it was really interesting how managers probably felt that pressure to, to entertain fans who have not been there for a long time. So that's probably mm. something I wouldn't consider likely. I mean, it's very obvious to say we won't have 3.4 goals a game right throughout the season. But um, yeah, I think that will probably settle down after the early weeks. Yeah, second highest opening weekend in terms of goals, as scoring generally is, uh, ever. Uh, let's start off our roundup of some of the, the key moments from match day one in the Premier League with the Sunday afternoon's twinkle in the fixture computer's hard drivers. Martin Tyler so memorably described it as Spurs Man City. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Champions Man City, beaten Sunday afternoon at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium to a soundtrack of Are You Watching Harry Kane? What a great start for Spurs new manager Nuno Espirito Santo. How did he stroke they do it? This was a real sort of where's Wally football game, much like a lot of the weekend where there's loads of colours, there's loads of brightness, there's a big crowd, uh, but a particular individual you're meant to find just isn't quite there. Uh, I really enjoyed Nuno basically not building on the very good work that Jose Mourinho had done in parts during his Spurs tenure. So uh, Spurs were very good on, on the attacking transition. If you sort of use your fingers in the same way, you sort of increase the volume on three things at the same time on a sound deck. That's how Spurs like to counterattack. So when they get the ball and they break forward, it's two or three Spurs players all running, but they all try and keep in different running lanes they don't try and overlap or get into each other's space Stephen Bergwijn was very good at this I think Lucas Moore had a fantastic game on the transition as well and even though it took Son a little bit to warm up by the second half he, he had that great shot also a word on uh, Tanganga who was just great defending just a proper I know Gary Neville made a comment about how Ben Mendy doesn't know how to defend but uh, Tanganga definitely does so yeah I think it was build on a bedrock of, of what was good from the Mourinho era, which is great attacking transitions uh, and keeping it really simple in defence. They just dominated the 1v1s. And in the end, City didn't really have much to do other than aimless crosses and sterile domination on on possession. Yeah, I mean, Guardiola must feel he's slightly haunted going to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. They've had 69 shots in four games without scoring a goal there now under him, which is a decent effort. And... and I think yeah, I think they probably should have been ahead in the first ten minutes, and then you add to that Riyad Mahrez's missed chance, which is exactly the sort of chance he's been taking this year. Um, and they probably merited a lead, but what happened to City is what we always say can happen to City, which is that if they don't get that lead, it feels like there's, there can be this kind of loss of belief that a clever opponent can seize upon, and that's exactly what Tottenham did. Um, I think the goal was it was both a really nice goal to create and finish, but also looked a bit messy in that you kind of wondered how on earth without extreme power on the shot it ended up where it did, which I think can mm. probably be explained by, by Ruben Diaz sort of missing his kick to clear it and, and and Edison not being able to commit to the dive until he'd seen Diaz miss that kick. But after that point, it was actually when I think Spurs were, were even better. It was kind of defending City from that point because they knew that onslaught would come. And, and as Carl said, City were basically reduced to these weird crosses from, from central areas and deep that was exactly how Nuno would have 
you know, would have designed an attack versus defence game if he was hoping to repel City. It was a fantastic performance from from Spurs, who, who, as I mentioned, harried got after that initial ten minutes did get very much in in City's face. Among the other things that Gary Neville said in the in the course of the game was that City were playing when they were one 0 down as if they were two 0 up. There seemed to be a lack comparatively of hunger from them. They did start slow last year, but this is now three one nil defeats in a row when you add in the Champions League final and, of course, the Community Shield. Is it the absence of a scorer? What does this mean for this whole Kane situation? I don't think it's so much the absence of a scorer. I think it's the usage of the fullbacks, even. So during the times where Manchester City have played well in these last three games, it tends to be when Guardiola gets this sort of inverted fullback system where one of the fullbacks moves into central areas and helps the defensive midfielders be one of Rodri or or Fernandinho. So uh, the good section against Leicester in the second half of the community shield, I want to say that was when Leicester were doing very good counterattacks and then sort of Cancelo moves in there, stops that, protects the central areas and also protects Nathan Aki behind. They had moments of that in this game against Spurs, but Benjamin Mendy, while he used to have the athleticism to go with his uh, slightly strange walkabout sessions. No longer has that. So there's just extra space in that middle. Fernandinho is a little bit older. And I think there's just, you can cart, not quite carve open Manchester City. You can run at City in the central areas in a way that you've not normally been able to in previous years. Now, Guardiola fixes this last season by essentially getting the team to play at walking near walking pace and dropping off the press. Um, so I think it's a combination of one, just the lack of a striker to focus, put the ball there. And then you've got this fact that there's just a lot more space there because they're not quite playing inverted fullbacks and the defensive midfield alchemy isn't quite what it used to be. City, I mean, they are rich enough and spend extravagantly enough that it, it reduces the um, the leeway that they merit. But they have had a reasonably difficult pre-season in that they had a couple of games off through COVID. Um, Phil Foden and, and Kevin De Bruyne are, are not match fit. I mean, Phil Foden wasn't there today and De Bruyne isn't match fit. Um, they are ingratiating Grealish into a role and I think they'll probably have to tweak that role because he likes to hold on to the ball at the moment and I think Guardiola will want him to be a little bit more dynamic with how quickly he passes it. Um, and that will take time. And I also think they're missing John Stones in in terms of his ability to step up with the ball and play the ball centrally rather than it taking one of the fullbacks to do that. But, um, you know, they, they, look, they were 11th after 10 games last season, but the difference last season is that nobody else really got a charge on them. Hmm. I think they will this season. So they won't get to, to do the same as they did a year ago, that's for sure. For all the difficulties in there, pre-season they haven't had another club come in and try and take away their best player for a ludicrous amount of money uh, which is what of course happened to Spurs and I think a lot of people thought that was going to put Nuno in a really difficult position putting a lot of pressure on him and his authority etc could it have been a motivating factor has it possibly been a boost for the rest of the team the Spurs team 
I, I think um, sometimes Nuno does behave like uh, like a man with a chip on his shoulder about something or other. So I think he could have used this situation to 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 motivate the guys. But I also think, in terms of the actual approach to the game, I think it really suited Nuno's football because I think if you look at the way Wolves played, it will kind of, I, th- I think there is some sort of similarities in this reactive style. You know, using the base of Traore on the counter here, you have someone like Son uh, running off, and I think someone like Nuno could have used the Kane situation. And for the rest of the players, I mean, they're losing their best player. But I think as in any team, if a guy wants away, uh, the mentality might change somewhat. Is he going to go? What, what do you think the situation is now, Daniel, as the chief football writer of the eye? <laughs> uh, <laughs> reputation on the line for the first time. I, I, my, my worry for Spurs, and, and they have been slightly dissuaded after the opening weekend, I must say, was that City would start slowly this season and therefore would go all in on Kane, but would produce a, a cash-only offer because they are easier to get done than you know the amount of moving parts you reduce the better when it's late in the window and that remains my worry that they see they see a necessity to go out and buy a striker and it, it's pretty obvious that if they do do that then Kane is at the top of their list so I think yeah I think it's made more likely by the fact if, if City had won 4-0 today and Ferran Torres had scored a hat-trick I think that might you know that might have changed things or certainly moved the needle a little bit I think it's moved it the other way and I think Guardiola may if the money is there he will think yes I, w- I want to go out and get Kane and, and I think there's been a little bit of smoke and mirrors in terms of Kane not playing the first game that always seemed likely to happen Spurs were never going to sell him before the season started but having got this game out of the way maybe they are more likely to do so because look if they can get 120, 130 million, Nuno will want to reinvest that on his squad as soon as possible. So it's in their best interest if it is going to get done to get it done. And it doesn't really help anyone, him not being in the match day squad for Spurs' opening game of the season. But this fixation with Kane and having looked at the way the game developed in the second half today, are they still not a little bit over-reliant on having Fernandinho? Because I thought towards the end, he he couldn't really keep up with, with those counter-attacks and they were, they were effectively playing around him. So, I mean, I, I know this this has been discussed at length. When is Fernandinho finally going to retire? But is, is this the type of player they should be looking for? Well, Rodri, I, I guess, is the the other alternative in that position, but he wasn't available today. Is that fair? Yeah, but but does he? Does, but but I mean, a as a backup, and b can a Rodri handle that position all on his own? Because there certainly have been question marks over that. Carl Anker says no, he can't. Tell us, Carl. I think Rodri is a fantastic player. I think he's very intelligent. I do have question marks over his level of athleticism to work as that sort of lone pivot that Pep Guardiola will ultimately want when he wants to play that array of free eights around them. So if Rodri does succeed Fernandinho there, I imagine it will also require Gundogan to to revert back to his more defensive state and one of the fullbacks to, to sort of move in into that inverted system that I, I mentioned earlier. They need to plug that space and that will probably require not only a defensive midfielder, but also an upgrade on Ben Mendy at left back. What about Spurs? After that performance against Man City, do you think that they need Kane back or need somebody to bring in to replace him? Yeah, they need a replacement. I, I, I know they were they were linked with Lautaro Martinez and that would be really, really nice, I think. Um, I, I suppose they probably need more of the, the kind of pivot, the kind of still point in the turning world striker, maybe rather than another Martinez type. But... Uh, yeah, I don't think they would say no to him, given that 
you know they do only have Europa Conference League football this season they can't promise players Champions League is it with any degree of certainty in the next couple of years so yeah and and they will also have full pockets and selling clubs know that so it won't be easy well, fantastic start anyway for Spurs, less so for City, who are already playing catch-up again. Let's check in on the other title contenders. Uh, Liverpool had their usual victory away at Norwich. Anything in particular that caught your eye about this, Sasha? Was it Mo Salah for the fifth season in a row, scoring on the opening day? I mean, there's something that slightly caught my eyes, uh, a bit of a regret, uh, because I do like going to Norwich to watch Liverpool. It's um, it's just a great away. Um, and uh, what I would point out, I think that there's actually quite a, quite a few important little things with Liverpool here. First of all, the midfield that started, that's probably not even the first choice midfield, Kate um, uh, Milner, Oxley Chamberlain. Uh, I think a very important at centre back we saw Van Dijk and Matip return. And uh, I'd like to remind everyone that they played a total of 11 minutes together last season and barely played together the season before after October. So I think that's an important thing. Matip looked pretty good. Um, obviously, no Robertson. So Tsimikas fitted in pretty well. And uh, Alisson came up with a couple of big saves, plus game changing substitution on the hour by Klopp because I think he got Liverpool out of a bit of a funk. I think the game was sort of beginning to slide. They ramped it up and then they're on three 0 winners. So I think overall, it's an opponent whom whom they keep beating. But what it looked like is that team finally looked looked rested. I think that they looked a bit sh- much sharper than they looked at most of last season. And also, they be- they are keeping up there on the head at the end of last season. I think this is important in terms of maintaining momentum. And as we'll see when we're going to get to Arsenal in a sec. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, both Jota and Firmino on the score sheet alongside Mo Salah for Liverpool. Uh, Norwich also keeping their run going. That's now 11 straight Premier League defeats. That obviously uh, stretches back to their previous appearance in the top flight. Chelsea got their usual victory against Crystal Palace, who've lost all of their last eight meetings uh, with the side from Stamford Bridge. They failed to have a single shot or touch in Chelsea's box in the first half. It was Marcus Alonso who opened the score and then Christian Pulisic who always scores against Palace. And then rather lovely to see former Chelsea ball boy Trevor Schellebar, uh getting a goal. Uh, he started in Belfast in the European Super Cup, to many people's surprise, at the back, and started here and got on the score sheet as well. Lukaku, though, is now confirmed, which seems to be swinging the needle in Chelsea's direction as regards the favourites for many people. What do you think, Daniel? I'm a bit worried about Lukaku and Chelsea. There were, there were some comments uh-huh. from Thomas Tuchel last week or, or the week before in which he said, you know, we've lost Olivier Giroud, so we need a striker who can play with his back to goal and hold up the ball. And I kind of thought, I thought we'd lost that Lukaku. I thought that's the Lukaku we'd, we'd, we'd seen transformed in Italy. Now, it might have been a throwaway comment in a press conference. It might have just been putting pressure on the club to say, look, we do need another striker. I, I hope that Chelsea use him in a different way to, to how Manchester United eventually used him. And I'm sure Romelu Lukaku feels exactly that. The the one thing I would say is that he's got enough confidence about him that he will demand to play in a system that suits him because it makes sense for him and makes sense for Chelsea. Indeed. How, how would you line up the, the, the Chelsea front line then? I'd play Lukaku as the central striker with um, Havertz one side and Werner the other probably to start with. Uh, reduce the onus on on Werner to to score goals, but him and I'm basically dreaming of a, a scenario in which Werner plays that Ataro Martinez role and Lukaku plays the Romelu Lukaku role uh, as of at Inter, and then Havertz kind of makes those runs from deep, which 
to an extent, I suppose, Inter didn't really have that exact role, but they certainly made it work. So, yes, that that's what I do. But we should say Chelsea have more strength and depth than any other team in the Premier League in those attacking areas. We've not mentioned Pulisic, we've not mentioned hudson Adoy, we've not mentioned Hakim Ziyech. Yes, there are a lot of competing options there. It, it almost feels like the, the front three might need to sort of invert because... Like for me, Werner plays a fundamental role in in stretching the play for Chelsea, so that I don't see how he doesn't start. And then obviously you can't not start Lukaku. So perhaps Havertz behind those front two, whilst um, whilst Werner is still creating space, and then effectively Lukaku uh, exploiting it. it, looks like the way forward. But I think the structure of the front play might need to change from what we've seen so far. All right, or even Werner up the middle with Lukaku out on one side and and and, and Havertz or someone else on the other. I don't know. Luckily, we, we're not paid to make those decisions, Chelsea fans. Big sigh of relief. Let's talk, Carl, about Lukaku's one of his old sides, Man United. Let's do that next. Uh, Harry, is there any truth in the rumours that you're off to Spain in the summer? Uh, 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 sorry, me, uh, me no hablo inglés. Uh, what about one of the Manchester clubs? Oh, uh, well, you know, it's... Uh... Well, Harry, what about my source who says you're keen to stay at Spurs? <laughs> uh, can we keep the question sensible, please? Kane's future at Spurs remains uncertain, but you're guaranteed to get money back as a free bet if one leg of your four-fold acre lets you down. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, Minards 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive, exclude shop bets and enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. 18 plus, begumbleaware.org. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. I think he might be offside, Bruno. Bruno Fernandes! Oh! Wow. Amazing strike! Fernandes brings the house down! Right then, Carl. Man United 5, Leeds United 1. Bruno with a sensational hat trick. Luke Ayling did pull it back to 1-1 for the visitors just after half-time with his first ever Premier League goal. But then Mason Greenwood restored United's lead just three minutes later and within a minute, Bruno had added another two, possibly a bit more than a minute, but it was pretty fast going. And then Fred added a fifth. And Crikey, you were there to witness the whole thing. Amongst the, the United performances that you have been there to see, where would you put this one? Oh, this is only the second time I've covered a United game in front of crowds and covering a United victory over Leeds in front of 75,000 is a bit different to watching them draw one all against Fulham with only 11,000. So I'll, I'll, stick, I'll stick this one as the number one for now. Uh, that was a doozy, to use the scientific term. Uh, I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer enjoys playing against Marcelo Bielsa and that uh, man-marking system that Leeds United use. So... You had uh, Rodrigo trying to man-mock Fred. You had Scott McTominay trying to be man-mocked by Klitsch. And you had uh, Robin Koch trying to man-mock Bruno Fernandes. And most man-marking systems, you defeat that by beating your man off the dribble or ping it really quickly in passing triangles or essentially loads of third-man runs and pulling people out of position. So the 6-2 victory last season was Bruno Fernandes going, OK, I'm just going to drop deep into space and Scott McTominay is going to fill that space and no one really suspects Scott McTominay to score. And, oh, look, they've scored twice. So the fourth goal comes about from Bruno and Mason Green basically looking at each other on the last line of defence and Green are going, I'll just step forward and you can just become the last man and uh, no one's going to track you there. And, and that was how that goal came out. Also, a word for Paul Pogba, when he's in that sort of ridiculous passing form where it looks like he's switched the gravity off and he can do moon assists. It's, it's a joy to watch. So this was 
a doozy. It was a fantastic game. Basically, the only slight, you know, you consider it's 75,000. They had even had time to introduce Rafael Varane. Um, Jaden Sancho got some minutes as well. Uh, the only small annoying thing is is uh, Luke Ayling's goal that denied United a clean sheet. I like the fact that Bruno Fernandes mentioned that, so it wasn't perfect. That was one of those goals for Ayling that I think happens because De Gea is in goal. Not because De Gea should have done more to save it, but because teams in the Premier League know you want to shoot early against David De Gea before he can get his feet set because you can't quite get there all the time. So uh, that might be something to look out for until Dean Henderson returns from recovering from COVID-19 and whatnot and probably goes back in uh, as the starting goalkeeper. But other than that, sensational. Not everyone will be coming up with shots of that quality, though, because it was a fantastic uh, strike, as were were pretty much all the goals. Uh, Bruno Fernandes is uh, fantastic. The one where he chops back and sits down, whoever the unfortunate Leeds defender was, was particularly choice. Paul Pogba, you mentioned his four assists, which, as you'll have noticed, listener, that's more than he managed in the whole of last season in the Premier League. Crikey. Now, Carl, earlier on you were saying, yes, but it's Leeds, and they did this and more against them. Last season as well, Man United did. Might this time be different? And if so, why? Would it be the presence, as you mentioned, of Rafael Varane? Would it be the arrival of Sancho and the fact that Cavani, Rashford are yet to uh, retake their place within the side? What do you feel might be different this time around? The big one in terms of personnel is the introduction of Jay and Sancho. When Sancho reaches full match fitness and becomes the, the starting player on the right hand side um, that will mean teams cannot just void the space on the right so very often what you've seen Leeds have done this now Villarreal did this in the Europa League final teams will basically go Wan-Bissaka is not really a threat in possession and whoever plays ahead of him if it's not Greenwood who tracks inside or it's Daniel James is erratic with the final ball so we'll just try and clog up the left where Luke Shaw, Rashford, Pogba, Bruno will try and come on and if the ball comes on the right hand side we'll swing around eventually but stay there Sancho is of such an attacking quality that very often it's useful to put two men on him. So that will immediately open up space in the middle and up top for other players. I think Donny van der Beek, when van der Beek comes in and eventually plays in advanced areas as a 10 for when Bruno cannot play 90 minutes, he will make more sense next to Jadon Sancho. I think there'll be more interesting passing triangles and diamonds when Cavani plays with Sancho as well. So that will reorganise Manchester United's attack. It won't just be Southpaw soccer, so to speak. I think Rafael Varane's introduction will allow United to play slightly further up the field. So not... They vaguely defend in the middle block, so half, the back four stands halfway between the penalty area and the halfway line. And I think Varane will let them stand a little bit further because he's, he's got the recovery pace to turn, turn around and make those last-ditch tackles. So they will get better. They got... 76 points last season and I think they will probably get just over 80 because of these new introductions. I don't think 82 points or 83 points will be enough to win the Premier League but they should hopefully be in the title race come April time and and probably will be looking at Champions League quarterfinals as well. Yeah, I mean there's a slight critical mass theory element to this in that if you add in Jadon Sancho and Rafael Varane to what was there before there's some pretty extraordinary strength in, in depth in United side, other than, it should be said, in, in central midfield. Um, but, you know, you look at the team on, on Saturday and there's no Rashford, Martial doesn't start, there's no Cavani, Jaden Sancho doesn't start, Rafael Varane is only introduced before kickoff. 
the the first choice goalkeeper is not playing or who we are led to believe is the first choice goalkeeper is not playing there's there's a heck of a five aside team there that doesn't start the game and 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 yes i think there there will be a title challenge the player who who, who i was most pleased for on saturday was was greenwood because he he did have a dip last season but he you know he he's still a teenager he doesn't leave his teenage years until october uh so that dip was always inevitable but just when you see him taking a ball in stride and then kind of arrowing it into that bottom corner you you know with a with a very selfish england head on it does get you very excited uh, i had a little moment after the game where i asked Solskjaer, when you've got a player like greenwood who you might want to eventually make the number 9 when do you add in new parts of his game? To which Solskjaer said, who said I want to turn him into a striker? Uh, and I felt very confused on a Zoom call and then sort of reiterated this desire to turn him into a forward. And he only really views Cavani as the forward. And then Solskjaer brought up the front line from 2007, 2008 of Carlos Tevez, Cristiano Ronaldo and Wayne Rooney. And I think that has always sort of been Solskjaer's plan for this United team to have that fast moving interchangeable fluid front three and he's got two parts there absolutely now in Mason Greenwood and Jaden Sancho and I think Marcus Rashford will come in and be that sort of selfless Wayne Rooney type role so that could be a potential front three when Cavani eventually you know reaches the end of his contract and goes away and then possibly can add more and more parts Speaking of adding more parts a couple of other questions I had one was what's happening with Eduardo Camavinga uh, talking of central midfielders and that is that all has that gone away now and the other question was uh, should Leeds United supporters be in any way concerned that's twice they've gone to Old Trafford in quick succession and conceded 11 goals uh, defending didn't seem to be of particular interest to them in, in this game I, I don't think it's defending I think it's basically it's Koch in the uh, Phillips role uh, but it's also right. it's quite extraordinary to watch in a very real sense I, 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 I think it, it's, it is systematic because it is quite extraordinary to watch that midfield being dragged apart so much that you have players from the wings turning into central midfield because there is so much space there. I mean, if you look at the second goal, it is a beautiful ball from Pogba, but he has he has about seven minutes there to pick his pass. Same thing for the third. And then you, you have like, you have Shaw turning inside because there is so much space there. It is an interesting system, but I think what United have learned to do so well against it is just like drag that shielding midfielder out of the way and just do whatever you want. And I think, I mean, it, it, it's, um, it's curious that other teams don't be so don't seem to be so effective with this, but I think this is the intelligence and mobility of the likes of Bruno Fernandes and also of Popovic feeling the game, knowing when to step into that space. I, I think Leeds will be, I mean, maybe no surprise because they have one of the most dogmatic managers in the world. But I think they will be exactly the same as as last season. Um, but I think they they are blessed by the fact that you know Aston Villa have lost their best player. Everton fans seemingly don't particularly like their manager. West Ham have got Thursday night football to contend with. You look at the teams below them, and it was you know it was Newcastle and Crystal Palace and and Wolves. And I, I just don't. There's not enough there. I don't think to really hurt Leeds. I think they'll lose heavily to the teams they lost heavily to last season, and probably do just about the same against the rest. Mm. All right, and Camavinga, Carl. TBC on any ingoings and outgoings now at Manchester United. Solskjaer has said anything at this point on would be a bonus. And I very much think it's now going to be a case of players have to be moved on before any new players can be moved into this team. Do United have a problem with the squad numbers and in terms of who can be in the 25 and stuff like that? Because I think Liverpool have that problem. <laughs> I think it's the fun thing of 
sort of Jaden Sancho's got quote unquote a squad number in twenty five, uh, and Varane now has gone for a squad number in nineteen because Phil Jones is still holding number four. Uh, yeah, you'll probably feature in some closed door games and some under twenty three games. So if you're if you're one for squad numbers in your starting lineups, man, maybe Manchester United aren't the team for you. I tell you does have a problem with their squad numbers uh, Sasha and that's uh, Ruben Kazan who had to draw their own on the back <laughs> of their jerseys last week what was that about oh, I, I, I don't know who manufactured their kit um, but basically yeah, everything came off under the rain I, I don't know how they stuck them on um, it seems to have come as a surprise to everybody but it's just uh, yet another in the line lengthy line of embarrassments uh, for Russian clubs in Europe I mean they're taking it to the next level now but yeah so then they ended drawing on uh, drawing on the numbers and then obviously the social media made you know lols out of this and stuff but what wasn't so funny was the fact that um, Rubin uh, the following week went out to a Polish side Rakov Częstochowa who were making the European debut uh, and then uh, Sochi lost to Partizan Belgrade thanks, thanks to a la- well on penalties but conceding with a last minute flap from a goalkeeper so they created the competition a Europa Conference League for you know teams from lesser footballing nations which Russia now is and they can't even get into that Crikey who's left then in Europe for Russia? It's just the three clubs uh, which I think will probably further continue embarrassing themselves so so you got Zenit St. Petersburg Port 3 in the Champions League and you got uh, obviously Spartak Moscow absolutely battered by Benfica like two years ago, Russia were higher in the rankings than Portugal. Now they're not even playing the same game. And uh, so they're going to go in the Europa League and Lokomotiv Moscow. And to be honest, they're going to play 18 between them, 18 group games. They might win about three. Uh, given they're in pot three, they will get strong opponents. It's a disgrace. It's an utter, utter disgrace. And apparently they're already circulating proposals to effectively um, cancel the limit on foreign players that they currently have. The limit on foreign players possibly has done more to destroy the game than, than anywhere else. So, you know, whenever I hear conversations happening in England about, you know, restricting competition and maybe, you know, foreign homegrown quota, not like the way it's done now, because I think that focuses on youth and that's actually smarter. But when they were going for like a more brutal approach, I was always looking at Russia going, you can't do this. And you see the results of this now. And like three years on from the World Cup, the game's in ruins. And like, I, like, I, like I, I've struggled now to follow the league because I see the results in Europe and they're so bad. And I was like, like, this is Farmers League now. Still, good news about the chocolate oranges, Sash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thanks for asking, James. Yeah, no worries. Uh, well, uh, Sash, on a cheerier note, Friday night saw you at the Community Stadium in Brentford for a historic return to the top flight by the Bees against Arsenal. Let's talk about that next. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Sweet sound there of Brentford fans serenading their return to the top flight after a very, very long time. Amongst the thousands at the community stadium, Sasha Gurionov. Sasha, you were in there. Did you sing Hey Jude? I was, it was, I, I was almost, I wasn't singing, but I was getting quite emotional uh, because right. I haven't been to the full two full ground since the 29th of February 2020, which was Watford Liverpool. And just to see all these people there, and it's a new ground, it's a packed ground, it's clearly a huge occasion for the fans because, yeah, they've, they've most, I think maybe single digits of them would have seen Brentford in the top flight before. Uh, this was the highest home attendance since I checked, I think, 31st of March 1972. Um, and it's just the whole, like the way it all came together. I thought it was absolutely beautiful. The way it was kicking off the football season, uh, the expectations, even the mess around. I was sort of going to the media office, being sent somewhere else. Kind of, I came out the door, sort of <laughs> swearing, "It's like no, no one knows what they're doing." And the fans, the fa- there was a fan walking past me, going, "Yeah, they don't do they." And I went, "Oh, awful, was he an Arsenal fan?" Like, no, no, it was, it was Brentford. But like, we, we, we sort of, we sort of laughed because this is the thing that we missed for, for such a long time. This sort of madness right. of the first day of the season, and yeah, there was there was such such a good good feeling about the place and. The way that then Brentford went out and played, I mean, that's mm. it, it was just it was so professional. Um, it was it was so Danish, um, and it made me really happy because I mean I've been living in West London now for seventeen years, and I've lived uh, sort of for a decade next to Loftus Road. Used to see quite a bit of Fulham, and obviously you, you look at the dynamic of West London. You, QPR dominated the early nineties, then it was Chelsea's turn. Chelsea remained dominant. QPR fell away. Fulham came to replace them. Now Fulham are wobbly, and then Brentford came up as the fourth club in this cluster of it's not a very big area and these clubs keep mm. coming up and also with Brentford as well they're not owned by a sheikh they're not owned by a, an oligarch or anything like that they're owned by a middle class English bloke who went to Oxford did physics and then because of stats went into finance and then betting and you know he built them up from something they created for themselves a competitive advantage which I think then they obviously tested kind of in Denmark and then the whole thing developed of being smarter than the market and, you know, I think they're the guys who basically made XG mainstream. A lot coming in there, obviously making statistics romantic, who would have thought? But then you see those fans that 17,000 or most of the 17,000 on Friday, and it's like, it's all worth it because it was absolutely stunning. It's a stunning, stunning occasion and made up that I was there. Well, that's fantastic. It reassure me that they're not going to be just this season's Hull or Blackpool. <sighs> I think it's, I think it's interesting uh, how they play um, because... Yeah, again, the 3-5-2 with Nürgo in the middle, uh, very reminiscent of the 3-5-2 that Denmark used to use to close out games at the Euros. Uh, The front two, I think, are going to be a bit of a handful uh, because the way they split the game, because Ivan Tony basically got stuck in got stuck in into all of Arsenal defence and he was absolutely he got, he, he got them rattled and at the same time 
Brandon Bermo, uh, just switched it on from time to time. He'd run into space. He'd, he'd basically, he hit the post early doors. Um, he kind of muscled his way through defense. Um, on another occasion, he had a pretty good one-on-one chance, which he should have buried. But the way the two of them interacted, also Bermo, he's built and he has a big bump. And it's a good, solid striker there. And he was actually came up for an interview afterwards to speak to the French. And as he walking, was walking away, I just looked at this figure and I went, yeah, you are balanced in the right way to be really hard, <laughs> to be knocked off the ball. And yeah, it just like the whole thing functioned. And also, of course, you know, they have Pontus Janssen at the back. And uh, this is where a bit of cynicism, a bit of, you know, a bit of filth comes into it because the throw in that they score for the 2-0, like people should compare, you know, goalkeepers get blocked on, on, in the situations. He doesn't just block him. He has him in an arm lock, he, like almost a double arm lock. He's holding him. Leno can't really do anything. We were looking, and this is one of the reasons why I mentioned VAR at the very start is like, yes, maybe they should spend a bit longer on that VAR because we were astonished that this was allowed to stand because he's being fouled. And and I think he's clearly playing on the boundaries of what's allowed, what's not. It's clearly a training ground thing. But like I, I was astonished that wasn't given as a foul because he is holding the goalkeeper. And it's not just tussling. He's just obstructing him and he can't, he can't actually come out and play. But, you know, they just did, like, again, perhaps they, in moments they were cynical, in moments they played better football. They were the football team, uh, whereas Arsenal, apart from Smith Rowe, who had a great turn, he actually completed 48 passes out of 49, and he, he really was the live water in that Arsenal team. But unfortunately, um, he couldn't win the whole game on his own. Yes, I know they had players missing and stuff, but with Arsenal, they have, I think it's Chelsea and City coming up. They could start the season with three defeats, uh, which psychologically would be quite a blow. Uh, but for, for Brentford as well, uh, I think they will be difficult. I don't think maybe they will be... Uh, we'll see them as you know, as you know, completely cha- you know, changing the paradigm like maybe Leeds would. Uh, but I think uh, they have a very good chance of being there in mid- in mid table by the end of the season. Brilliant start for a team, none of whose starting eleven had actually begun a Premier League game before. A lot of Arsenal fans naturally were upset, including Paul Kagami, president of Rwanda, who was on a tweeting spree after this one. Fans don't deserve to get used to this. No. Triple exclamation mark. I say this is one of the big fans of Arsenal. The change has taken too long to come. Continues President Paul of Rwanda. We just must not excuse or accept mediocrity. A team has to be built with a purpose to win, 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 so that when we lose, it was not to be expected. I'm sure we all know on whose shoulders the heaviest burden rests. I hope they know too or even accept it. End. Adds Paul. Who, whose shoulders is he talking about, Daniel? Well, I suspect he's talking about Stan Kroenke's shoulders right. um mm. rather than rather than Callum Chambers's um but yeah I mean it was an incredibly dispiriting night in that there was kind of both symbolic and incredibly overt reasons to be pretty worried you know there was the the fact that it was uh two new signings Ben White and, and Lakonga who were put up for the postmaster press duties which suggests an absence of some pretty honest leadership it was the fact that Smith Rowe was the best player who's been there five minutes so he's not quite been Arsenal fired yet there was the fact that they were pretty good in possession and got into dangerous areas but failed to convert that into chances which was very old Arsenal and there was the there was a concession of to a long throw which is also very old Arsenal and yet there was also this very overt obvious disaster which is that they they were absolutely calamitous and, and offered no response to Brentford's pressing. And, you know, Brentford are like Leeds in that the style isn't exactly the same, but you know exactly what you're going to get. There should have been no surprises in how Brentford played. I I was impressed with how 
composed they were and how they went about their press. It wasn't sort of harem scaring, which it could have been on the first night of the season. But there was no surprise there. If they'd have watched the championship last season, they'd have seen that. And they would have seen it as good enough to break down very good teams if that team is careless in possession and sloppy out of possession. And that's exactly what Arsenal were. Mm. As Sasha mentions, next up for them, it's uh, Chelsea with potentially Romelu Lukaku. Uh, that's on Sunday. And then Man City in the following match. Crikey. All right. Well, it was nice to see when Bukayo Saka came on that he was uh, applauded onto the pitch by Brentford supporters, just as he had been in the recent Arsenal Spurs uh, friendly Sasha. Yeah, it was it was a great moment um, because yeah, as soon as everyone realised that he's getting subbed on, like the, everybody around me, like I was sort of in the centre in the centre of the main stand, uh, everybody was standing up and giving me a big round of applause, and yeah, it, it just felt really genuine. Um, and uh, I think it is great, I think, to see that level of support, which com- seems to come naturally from rivals, from you know, from relative neutrals. I think you know, Brentford are probably quite neutral towards, towards Arsenal, and but it's just, um, I, I think again. Situations like that, you know, restore your faith in humanity. Good. Excellent. More of that kind of thing, please. A good start for fellow promoted side Watford, who hung on for a 3-2 win against Aston Villa. I say hung on, but the kind of the Villa comeback came came late. Watford had roared to a 3-0 lead with a couple of debut goals. Emmanuel Dennis and Kucho Hernandez, who'd been with them since 2017, but never actually taken the field for Watford. And Ismail Asar got the other one for the Hornets. Villa, with that extraordinary John McGinn volley, making the uh, scoreline perhaps a little less academic. And then in the 97th minute, a Danny Ings penalty. Uh, Carl, though, you were saying, I think, back at the start, that this is the result that you would set the least store by. Yes. So Watford, Watford were impressive, and, and Saar very much now looks like the player that Watford ultimately thought they were getting when they signed him at the start of the 2019 season. Uh, he looks phenomenal. And I very much now understand why Sadio Mane told Troy Dini to look after him. Uh, but I, I still think Aston Villa have it within them to play much better than that. And Aston Villa will very much want to play much better than that because that was a uh, leggy performance, shall we say, from Dean Smith's side. They've just lost John Terry from their coaching staff, Villa. Could that be anything to do with it? I'm 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 shrugging my shoulders. <laughs> yeah, he is a fine coach of defenders by all count. I, I think, I mean, you forgive me for being slightly controversial here, but I think the loss of Jack Grealish is probably a little bit more uh, of an influence. I mean, we're talking about a player who, you know, ranked first for chances created for them, dribbles, assists, second, mm. I think, for touching the opposition box. He only started 24 games last season for them. And... <laughs> You just cannot overlook how hard it's going to be, not just to replace him because they can't, but to they didn't really need to find any chemistry last season because the answer was just give it to Grealish and everyone else play off him. So they're almost having to create a complete new attack, not just replace a player. Buendia is, I suppose, the direct replacement, but he, he won't be able to do what Grealish did because he had such an understanding with everyone else. The other thing I'd say is that Matt Target, you know, Carl was praising Ismail Assar and rightly so. Matt Target was excellent last season. And I mean, Saar got him substituted at half-time on Saturday, 45 minutes into a new season. That's how well Saar was playing first half. Watford have now won 19 out of 27 league games under Cisco after he took over the club at Christmas. Looking good. Well, we'll follow their fortunes with interest. Next up, though, let's just round up some of the other games, including Match of the Weekend, according to Daniel, that took place 
in this opening round. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Antonio's galloping forward, here's the pass, Antonio's through, chance to fall, what a goal! What a brilliant strike by Mikel Antonio! Hammers West Ham into a 4-2 lead here. Boom. Who had Newcastle West Ham, Dan, as game of the weekend? 4-2 it was for the Hammers, who twice had to come from behind. Callum Wilson to kick things off. Carbs galore as Sam Maxima had rice on toast, and then it was Cresswell for the visitors, and then the Magpies uh, finished the first half back in front through uh, Jake Murphy. Twenty shots in total in the first half. It was uh, blistering stuff, and then the second half was all hammers. Why? What happened, Daniel? Uh, I mean, Declan Rice basically grabbed hold of the midfield and and you know danced to the same tune he was he was fabulous second half there was a kind of comical moment where he went down with cramp with about 15 minutes to go and took what looked like toilet paper and I'm assuming was bandage off his leg and suddenly played like Pele so maybe just just leave it off for next time because he was he was fantastic he was driving forward uh and yeah basically he he strangled Alan San Maximan's second half which meant that Wilson was isolated and uh, Newcastle's Basically, their only idea to respond to that was pushing more and more midfielders forward and getting caught on the break. A, a, a word for Saeed Ben Rama, who hasn't had the easiest time mm. since coming to the Premier League, but Moyes says he's had a fantastic pre-season. And he, I think he got given the official man of the match and was probably, other than Rice, the best player in the second half. So, yeah, West. I, I feared a bit for West Ham because they, they haven't signed anyone and Lingard's left and they've got this European football to contend with. But... Yeah, they look so good as this kind of fluid counter-attacking team, which isn't really what I thought David Moyes would be able to do. But, you know, all praised him for that. Maybe Newcastle should reconsider how they approach this season because they had 47% possession in this game. Maybe they just can't have this much possession if they keep on getting caught on the break because they just can't cope with it. They don't seem to understand how it is to play with the ball, how you can be hit once you (laughs) lose the ball. And it just kept on happening. Mm. All right. Now, uh, moving along, Carl's very concerned about Southampton after what happened to them away at Goodison Park. It was a 3-1 win for Everton. It was actually uh, Saints who'd taken the lead in Rafa Benitez's first game in charge after a bit of a Michael Keane faff for Adam Armstrong uh, putting the visitors ahead. What swung it around for the Toffees, though? I mean, I don't want to say Rafa Benitez, but I'm going to say Rafa Benitez. I mean, in the last... Everton have been historically, or over the last few years, have been a dismal when conceding the first goal. Uh, mm. I, I'm doing a, a new Monday morning column and I, I had a look and basically since December 2017, they'd conceded the first goal in 59 Premier League matches and only won two of those. 
um, oh. just really just rotten at showing any sort of resilience after falling behind. And if is that if, worse than Man City, by the way? Uh, it is worse than Man City, yeah. So so that is bad. But uh, but if Benitez is is one thing, he's he's resilient and he'll instill that into them. And yeah, no, they sh- they should be beating Southampton at home, and they were booed off at half time because they were bad in the first half. But they did turn around the game. They haven't been doing that often enough recently. So in a kind of bizarro way, Benitez will probably be happiest that the game went like that because he, he kind of got to show what he's good at. I was speaking to Everton fans, um, my mates who support Everton, and uh, they were saying, well, you know, all that Benitez did at half time, which is correct his mistake at, with the start because they reckon that uh, Richarlison was too far wide. And actually, if you look at the second and second half, Richarlison is coming a little bit more central, even drifting off to the right to create, um, I think, the third goal. So, but I, I think, you know, Everton switched on intensity in the second half um, for about I don't know, 25 minutes and you know th- that that was enough to win the game um, and I think yeah I, th- I think this is very important about um, uh, recovering uh, from early setbacks because yeah if anything with Everton of recent years they just haven't been really resilient at all mm. and Sash how how deeply felt is this resentment of Rafa as a former Liverpool manager among Everton supporters from your kind of sample group I think two, three bad results and it's going to be difficult for him. Um, and it's just, I, I think it's... it's, it's two or um, three good results? Well, the thing is, I don't think it's going to be relevant how many good results. I think as soon as two, oh. three bad results, this is when um, people will start getting upset. Uh, I think, though, I think he's... I think he's got thick enough skin. I think he was in a very similar position, as I mentioned before. He was this very similar position at Chelsea. And mm. um, it's not that he doesn't care very much, but I think he can work through it. Uh, but yeah, I do think he needs to he needs to keep up uh, a reasonable run of form. Okay. You could say the same about Saints, of course, Carl. But you're very worried about them. Yes. So historically, Southampton have had very bad first games of the season. But we're now looking at a Southampton team that sold their starting left-back from last season, Ryan Birchin, to Leicester City, sold Yannick Vestergaard to Leicester City, their highest goal scorer of the previous season, Danny Ings, has gone to Aston Villa. Uh, at least two football clubs have made bids for James Ward-Prowse. I don't believe Ward-Prowse will leave, but he's that very much homeboy, uh, one-club man. He has all the makings of that. But it does feel... I'm not going to say it, it's an asset strip, but sometimes it can feel like an asset strip. And I know mm. Southampton have got in reinforcements. Liveramento looks very, very good. Uh, obtained from Chelsea's academy. Uh, Armstrong, very high volume shooter, so to speak, in, in the championship. He takes a lot of shots and, and a okay amount of those go in. And I was very good that he got a debut goal. And I think that will probably kick him on rather than what we saw in 2019, 2020, when Shea Adams took a long, long, long time to get going. So those are the positive bits, but that squad is, to my mind, weaker than what it was last season. And last season, that squad was already a squad that was small and heavily reliant on Raf Hassan coaching his butt off, basically, to get maximum reward from a tiny amount. Uh, Southampton should be a Europa Conference competing side. I can't really see them finishing higher than... 14th this season which is quite sad okay all right thanks for putting a number on it uh, two other games to mention one as sash uh, told us earlier brighton scoring goals coming from behind all those kind of things away at turf moor 
Uh, Burnley all over them in the first half. They were 1-0 up at half-time, having also hit the post and the bar. But in the second half, had precisely no shots on target as Brighton rattled chance after chance against uh, Pope. Uh, Graham Potter's substitutions widely hailed as making the difference here. Burnley also equaling their club record of 11 league matches without a home win. So this is essentially nothing new for the Clarets. Sasha, anything else you want to say before we move on to Leicester Wolves? Uh, just, just an observation uh, for the first goal that uh, Burnley scored. Uh, I know there was um, obviously the VAR check on Tarkovsky push on Morpi, but I thought mm. what was interesting here and actually on the corners in the first half, which made Sanchez, the goalkeeper uh, for Brighton, very uncomfortable, was the way Jack Cork was just blocking him off. And I think compared to what Cork was doing to Sanchez, which is just basically just you know nudging him out of the way. He's in front of him, he's not touching him, he's just backing into him. Well, actually, fine. on the goal, he did he did back into him, and I thought that's yeah, what the Marchet was originally but, about. But, but no, but he's just he, can, he he's kind of he's sort of standing his ground. Yes, it, it is a bit of a backing into, him, but the hands aren't involved compared to what to what right. um, Janssen, Janssen was doing it to <laughs> like Leno, an older brother bullying a child, him. not touching, not touching. Yeah. You no, know, yeah, no, but he's, but he, I think it's perfectly. So he's just there. He's just there. He's just not really doing that much. But he, but he's doing enough. And this is compared to Janssen wrestling Leno, basically, which, 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 right. which is completely different level of this. So I thought um, it, it's just interesting to compare how those two decisions and how how keepers get obstructed uh, in the set piece situations. Sasha, as a goalkeeper in a situation like Leno, should Leno what should Leno be more vocal? Should he be more streetwise? Should he be more miss miss? To the referee, I don't know why I've said miss there. I'm talking about my old <laughs> problems with well, police. Well, no, no, let's not laugh because, you know, refer- referees, yes. Is he talking to his forwards when he says miss, miss? <laughs> um, so I think I think Leno's situation is difficult because how do you extricate yourself from this? Uh, Janssen's humongous and he's basically sat on your head. This is where referees should be seeing this. Alternatively, this is where you go to the old playground stuff. You need to put a defender. If you see, if you're a defender, again, Arsenal being proactive. If you're Ben White and you're seeing that your goalkeeper is being absolutely, basically manhandled here, you need to step in there and get that guy off your keeper. Uh, because, again, the situation with Cork against Sanchez, maybe Sanchez is a big enough boy to deal with that. Situation Len with Janssen, he's just like he's stuck. He's basically, if he's tried to push him out of the way, I think this is a, where Janssen falls over and goes, oh, miss, miss, he fouled me. And it's just, it, it just I think, I think Leno is put in a situation where he can't concentrate, he can't extricate himself, and he needs some help from some proactive teammates and possibly the referee as well, as well as the guys looking at VAR. What, what do you do, Sash, when people back into you? I, uh, I rake my studs down the backs of their cars. <laughs> uh, it's... Yeah. it's yeah, you just uh, that's it, that's going to work. I th- yeah, it, it does work, okay. and it's and, and the referees don't see that. Right there, you go. Goalkeepers are listening. Uh, more top tips on the way. Next up, uh, Leicester Wolves, as low scoring as ever, uh, just one nil here. But it was a stunner from Jamie Vardy, who just about got the toe of his boot round the defender to uh, tip that ball. Past the Wolves keeper Jose Sarr. Uh, last five meetings between these sides have produced. Just two goals and both were scored by Jamie Vardy. I see Ibrahim Mustafa saying uh, Jamie Vardy had his worst goal-scoring season for a couple of years last season, probably because he didn't have rival fans to rattle with his celebrations. Nature is healing, says Ibrahim. I mean, I know it's a point made slightly with tongue-in-cheek, but I also think it's absolutely spot on. You know, you've heard about players saying they miss home supporters, but Mm. Vardy scores the winner and then goes and does a mock wolf howl at the Wolves away support. (laughs) 
that there is a man who feeds off hate and feeds off away supporters. So I, I do I think that's a factor. And I also think the fact that Pat Sundaka has come in to provide some genuine competition for places will spur Vardy into this kind of final age of him as a Premier League striker. He's I think he's now nine behind or eight behind Ian Wright in terms of the most Premier League goals scored after turning thirty and probably will pass him this season. Crikey. Great to see Raul Jimenez starting again for Wolves back in the Premier League for the first time since November 2020 after that terrible injury to his head. All right, very shortly we'll talk about one or two other things from this weekend and also have a quick word for Gerd Muller who passed away on Sunday. First of all though, let's join producer Charlie for some odds from Paddy Power. Thank you, James. That's it, listener. That's the end of the opening weekend in the Premier League. Only 37 games left to go in this title race. But Carl Monaghan is here from Paddy Power to tell us what's going to happen in some other title races. Carl, La Liga kicked off this weekend. How has all this Barca business affected the odds? Well, Barca drifted Charlie in the La Liga, betting on their heart and soul. Messi stunned the world and signed for PSG. They were 11-8, to 8, but they went out to 12-5. to 5. Memphis on a free, though, looks like a shrewd bit of business. And Pedri... Looks like he may well be the heir to Xavi's throne, but Barca without Messi is going to be weird. And the after effects will be sure to linger in the Catalan's dressing room for a while. Ronald Koeman will have his work cut out for him this season. Carlo Ancelotti's Real Madrid, who are the 11-10 favourites, will have a new-look centre-back pairing after Ramos and Varane departed, but once again are set to be very reliant on the special powers of Karim Benzema to finish top of the pile this time round. Third of the betting at 13-5 is the current champions Atletico Madrid, and with all that has gone on this summer, Diego Simeone's well-drilled outfit looked the best value to defend their title as they have retained their key players and added Rodrigo de Paul who had a very impressive Copa America for Argentina recently. They'll be well aware, Atletico Madrid, of the fragility both Barca and Real will be feeling this season. It's always about the big three in Spain, Charlie. The last time a side won the Liga outside of the big three was Valencia under Rafa 18 years ago. We have to wait until next weekend for Serie A to return. Sunday's with Jimbo, the way it's meant to be. But who's going to be claiming the Scudetto come May? Ah, Sunday lunch with Grandma's roast, Jimbo and his pump. Peter Brackley's dulcet tones and Capello's Rossoneri slapping everyone silly. Right, where were we? Ah, the betting for Syria. Ah, Charlie. A lot has changed since Inter won the Scudetto. Conte and the club parted company back in May. But how do you agitate the ultras? Well, try selling your best player to raise funds after winning the league. That ought to do it. So they've now drifted to 4-1 to one from 11-4, to four, Charlie, on the back of their goal scorer Lukaku, leaving to go back to Chelsea. He's not the only quality player out the door, though, as the talented right-back Akimi left to join PSG. And don't forget it's uncertain what the future lies for one Christian Eriksen after his health scare at the Euros. The odds-on favourites for the title are Juventus, who have replaced uh, Perlo with Allegri in a bid to get their mittens back on the title. Atalanta are third in the betting at 9-2 after a brilliant campaign last year that saw them finish third. We can't not mention Jose Mourinho's Roma, who are a 12-1 shot. And interestingly, AC Milan are a massive 14-1 after finishing second last season. But their attack is looking better already, Charlie, with the signing of gorgeous Giroud from Chelsea. Although I think his first name is Olivier. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply and when the fun stops, stop. Now, out this Monday, there's the Totally Football League show, brilliantly hosted uh, by the always excellent Matt Davis-Adams. 
I note that no team in the Championship after two rounds of action has a 100% record. That's classic. Uh, only two teams, though, have suffered two defeats out of two. One's Preston North End. Who's the other one? Anyone? Yeah, Anyone got that. this? Just move on. Just move on. Yeah. It's not Fulham, I can tell you that. They had a whopping 5-1 victory over Huddersfield. Boom. Excellent. All right, well, uh, Totally Football League show to hear all the teams discussed, not just the ones that are convenient. Uh, with Matt Davis-Adams, that's out later on Monday. Totally Football Show European edition will be out first thing on Tuesday. We'll be answering all sorts of big questions like, did Barcelona actually manage to get their players registered for the weekend's games? They said they did. The league said they didn't. Is this the year that Dortmund do it in the Bundesliga? A brilliant start for them, a less so for Bayern Munich. And, of course, we'll hear from Rafa about the uh, the news of the passing of, of Gerd Müller. Uh, who's been saluted by everybody, basically, in, in, in German football. Sasha, I know this is something that that you were really uh, struck by. Uh, explain to anyone who's uh, too young to know who Gerd Müller was, what he represents. Uh, for me, he represents the original fox in the box. Uh, he's the guy who's just scoring goals and scoring stupid amount of goals um, for a team that wasn't, you know, we now think of Bayern as this behemoth. But they weren't this before Müller's arrival. Um, Müller, Müller's rise coincided with Bayern's rise. And to be honest, you know, if you have a guy who scores, at the, I think his career was almost a goal a game for Bayern. Uh, this, 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 is, this is quite a bit of a boon. I think most people think that they think of that Bayern, they think of Beckenbauer. But for me, I think it's Müller. And I think with, with Müller, of course, you know, he's been documenting his drinking problem and stuff. And But I think one thing that does get overlooked, I think it was Uli Hoeneß uh, who went out and obviously found him out in the dumps and gave him a job at Bayern just, you know, to look after him. And I think this is this is one of those things where, you know, Hernes, you know, I don't think he's very well liked um, in, in general. Uh, but I think there is a side to Hernes where he looks after his people. And um, I think, you know, from my understanding, you know, Müller was in big trouble. And, you know, the fact that, you know, he managed to live his life out in, in, in dignity uh, as suits so such a great player. I think, um, uh, you know, I think it's it, it, a lot of credit has to go to Hernes. But also for me, like, if you think about Soviet football in, in, in the 70s, we played in the 1972 European Championship final uh, where Müller scored twice. Um, and then he came up against Dynamo Kiev just as... Um, you know, there was a bit, just as Soviet football started establishing international club reputation. So he was always on the radar um, and he was always obviously greatly respected, I think, everywhere he played because he had qualities that um, uh, that made him an outstanding player of his age. It was, of course, Gerd Müller's incredible record that Robert Lewandowski finally broke last year of 41 goals in a, in a single season. That's a record that had stayed for... For fifty odd years, but for for West Germany, meanwhile, a, a World Cup winning hero. Yeah, he had one of those comic book scoring records where you kind of have to double take to believe it. But there wasn't any degree of stat padding there. You know, he scored big goals, as Sasha refers to, big goals in big finals, consistently, and with an unerring ability to find space in the penalty area. I saw Gary Lineker tweeting to say like he he grew up as basically with Muller at his idol and you can see that so much in Lineker's play when you know about it because you watch the two play and they could be the same player um I mean Muller's record is 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 much more prolific than Lineker's but the way they look for space in the box and then the one touch finishes is is unerring basically 
Another of uh, Muller's records. It's incredible. Only player since 1962 to score 50 international goals at more than a goal a game. Yeah, I mean, he retired from international football at the age of 28 and yet post these numbers that lasted for so long. There's a fantastic photograph of him uh, where I think it's when he's playing for West Germany and a, a free kick is being delivered. And uh, the moment the ball crosses over the opposition wall he's already bearing down on goal waiting to get the to get the spillage which I think encapsulates the sort of play he was he was always on this what we now call the second and third movement the goal hangers goal hanger so to speak we heard from Raphael Honigstein on, on Gerb Muller, his life and legacy in Tuesday's European edition of the Totally Football Show, as well as rounding up what happened in the opening weekend of Bundesliga action. Uh, there were opening weekends as well. It were an opening weekend as well in La Liga. We'll get Alvaro on that. There'll be more from Julien on Ligue 1. And uh, James Horncastle will be counting us down to the start of the City A season next weekend. As for today's show, well, that kind of wraps it up, I think, unless uh, Daniel, Carl or Sasha wanted to throw anything else away. No? Um, well, go on, Carl. What was it? No, I was just, I was, I'm just really curious about the change in refereeing rules. There have been two or three tackles and instances mm. where I'm going, that would have been a free kick last season. Or there have mm. now been two or three moments where the referees clearly brought a player over and gone there, there, there and there. Now yeah. you're getting yellow carded. So Tanganga. Uh, mm. Yes, Luke Shaw had one mm. uh, against Leeds as well. So I think the yellow cards swing will uh, take a while to rebalance itself. Are you in favour, Carl? Yeah, why not? Let him scrap it out for a little bit longer. Nice, nice. Brilliant. Listen, thank you so much for being with us right to the bitter end. We will return, as mentioned, at various points throughout the week. Hopefully you'll be with us for now. Uh, it's many thanks to all involved. And from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.